so funny and adorable. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Sarah. I am a grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups and so thrilled to be here. I don't remember that I didn't call her back. <laughs> Um, yes, apparently. Um, won't do that again. <laughs> but I do want to thank Allison and also Julia. You have been by my side. And I always say that the, right, I've heard this before. Nothing I say is new. Um, the magic words in Alan honor me too, right? And like within probably 30 minutes of hanging out with Julia, we were both saying, me too, me too, you know, in that connection. So I love that. Um, and then also getting to hang out with Rosie and Joe and my friend Stephanie. Um, we are having Al-Anon play dates all over the nation. You know, we just meet up at these conferences, which is so much fun. Um, so it's, a, it's just a delight to be here. Um, I have so much to tell you. I can't, I don't even know where to begin, honestly. And um, Stephanie said something this morning about this is the day that you've been waiting for. And uh, my life has been a roller coaster, but I just happen to be, you caught me on a good day, and I happen to be on a really up right now. And um, I'm probably the best version of myself that I've ever been. I don't think I've known this kind of happiness. I have a sense of peace and serenity in my soul where I know that I am not quite yet, but I am certainly on the path to becoming the the woman that I think God created me to be. And to be here and to be able to say that with confidence, even though I'm dying inside because I'm like, oh my gosh, Um, there's some parts of my story that none of you have heard, uh, which I may share today. Um, So I am nervous to be transparent and honest and all of that. But to be able to say that is such, I can't even tell you, it's the gift, right? So I want to thank you for being here and listening. Um, but for me to just be able to say that, I, I, I love my life. And um, that in itself is a miracle. So um, I am one of those weird people that do generally grow up or, or wake up happy. Um, it's kind of annoying. Um, but to be truly, genuinely happy on the inside all the way through. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, I am not uh, <laughs> a spokesperson for Al-Anon. Um, I have been coming to meetings for a long, 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 long time. I just celebrated my 30 years in program. Um, I started coming to meetings when I was 14 years old. So I started in Alateen, and I count my Alateen time. I hope you guys will, too. Um, because uh, it's the one thing that I've done really well is go to meetings. Um, So anyway, uh, it's just my story. I am just one woman who has applied the principles of the program, and this is what is turning out. So I, 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 I mean, it's really my opinion. And I love the saying, if you can't be a good example, be a loud warning. So... um, (laughs) I might be a loud warning, um, but I'm just going to dive in. Um, I grew up in a family that was affected by alcoholism. My dad drank, my mom cried, and I screamed. Um, I just remember one feeling growing up, and that was anger. I was pissed off, so angry, so gypped, so cheated, so uh, jaded. Just the world was against me, and I felt overly responsible. I'm the oldest of five kids, and what I thought that meant is it was my job to fill in the gaps of my parents, and there were a lot of gaps. Um, I had no respect for either of my parents. It really harmed me later in life because it's still difficult for me to have respect for authority. Um, I 
saw my dad as weak because he could not stop drinking. He couldn't hold down a job. We were always moving. We never had food. And I couldn't respect my mom because the house was a mess. She was crying all the time. She couldn't get it together. And I just have always been unyielding and overly critical and self-righteous, dominating, you know, like our literature talks about. I came out like that. I remember being five years old and looking my mom up and down and thinking, I'm a better mother than you. And that was like a serious thought. Um, I just, I, I don't know why I, I am the way I am, but I came out angry. Today, I've worked my steps. One of the best parts about getting to step six and seven, I'm kind of going to jump around a little bit, but I'm a big believer in the steps, is that you get to see where the character defects have gone awry. And for every character defect, there's a character asset. And the anger that I knew growing up in alcoholism is now my enthusiasm. And so there's a flip side to everything that is causing you suffering. So I just just want to give you a little bit of hope to hang on because the steps applied to any w- way that alcoholism has affected you will turn you into an amazing um, individual that you couldn't have been in the disease, if that makes sense. But um, the point is, is that uh, you don't have to drink to suffer from alcoholism. I am not a drinker, um, but I grew up very tainted and tweaked. And um, I remember, uh, I need to also share with you that my dad is a pastor, and so I am a preacher's kid. I have religious residue. I'll overlook yours if you overlook mine, that sort of thing. I um, Today, I know there's a difference between God and the people that follow God, and the people that follow God are not necessarily my favorite, um, but... I know how to take what I like and leave the rest. But growing up in that home, it was very confusing because I would see these people follow my dad. He was very charismatic, or he is very charismatic, um, and he could just woo a whole crowd. And there were times when I felt like I was like, oh, I'm so proud to be his daughter. And then there were other times, most of the time, that I felt so angry that everybody was fooled but me. Like, am I living in the twilight zone? Am I the only one who sees what's happening? Why is everybody being fooled? What is it about him that can just make everybody believe? And I would get so mad. Um, People would kind of pat me on the head because I was always this, well, I am blonde-haired and blue-eyed, but I used to be, you know, very petite and super cute. And people would just be like, oh, she's such, she's so-and-so's daughter. She's so cute. And honestly, I wanted to be like, "Ah!" You know, like, like I just felt like this black ooze was going to come out of me any minute. And I just felt so dark and so jaded and so, but then I knew how to put on the facade and my family was so good at the picture, you know, and just the smile and, uh, and all of that. And the charade that I resented so much about my dad, I got so good at. And the thing is, is my identity is being right and being good and getting straight A's and being the teacher's pet. I mean, I'm not just right. I'm right. Righter than right. My sponsor once said to me, the way that you are right is wrong. (laughs) So I, but that was my identity. And so I knew how to show up at church or show up at school and be, you know, prim and proper and happy, happy. And then at home, I was just raging. And I would get in my dad's face all the time. Later in Alateen, I would learn it was super dangerous to get in the face of a drunk. I never got hit. I probably should have been hit because I was up in his face all the time yelling. I taught my younger sister how to dial 911. Um, We had the police at our house. I was begging them to do something to take us away. 
say, my mom used to say, why do you see everything black? Like no matter what it is, you make it worse. Later, just like I was telling you about the anger enthusiasm, later my sponsor would tell me that that my willingness was such a gift. So my ability to take something and blow it up and make it bad also works in the positive. And I can take a little bit of gratitude and blow it up. And like I said, I'm having an amazing life no matter what. And so that that flip happens here in the program. But anyway, so my mom would say, you see everything black, you make everything worse. Why do you have to do that? And my brothers and sisters will tell you, we were way more afraid of you than we ever were of dad. You know, because I was like pushing them under the bed. He's going to kill us. You know, like I was so over-dramatized, but I was in so much pain. I just felt like I was oozing out. Anyway, um, my dad is the kind of um, alcoholic who could, he can go periods with, actually, I shouldn't even call him an alcoholic. He has called himself an alcoholic over the years, but I don't know if he does today. Uh, Probably not, Um, but I will say his drinking bothered me so much. Um, anyways, he could go periods without drinking. And so then there would be this time where we'd be like, everything's going to be okay again. And we'd up and move. And so we moved all over. All five of us were born in different states. Um, and then there were periods where my dad also suffered from depression and he would just lose everything and he couldn't get up. And my mom couldn't do anything because she had five kids before she was 30. And I'm trying to run the household and we have no food, but we're given to the church. And like, you know, just that crazy madness. And there was this, um, There are bouts of uh, my childhood where we were homeless, and there's this one story that I like to tell, not because I want you to feel sorry for me. I definitely don't. Please don't. Um, It's more because it gives you an indication of how I reacted, and it's more about how I reacted to alcoholism that got me sick than the fact that I grew up in alcoholism. So we're in this campground, and my dad would leave in the morning. He'd go to look for work or food or whatever, and he'd leave us there, and every week we moved from one campsite to the next because you could not stay in a campsite longer than a week. It was to keep the homeless out. We fooled them, and uh, so... My job was to, like, entertain the kids, be with the kids, take them on hikes, make it fun, keep them in check, da-da-da-da. And this one time, there was another family, and they were right next to us, and they were, like, really camping. Like, it was family vacation. And she had, like, a tablecloth, and she had this huge spread of food. And we were kind of, you know, we're like mangy white trash. We're standing there, and... Um, hungry, and we're probably staring at it, watching it. Now I know it was probably less about the food and more about the family that we were watching, that we wanted so desperately, or at least I did. And uh, I remember locking eyes with the mother, and she looked at me, and I was probably about 10, and I felt 40. And she locked eyes with me, and I saw her realize in that moment that we were like the real deal. And she gathered up all the food and the tablecloth and shooed her kids into the tent and, you know, to, like, go and eat in private. And I remember I stood a little taller. I stared her down. And, like, every – like, even the hair on the back of my neck stands up today. Like, I just had this, don't you underestimate me. Don't you feel sorry for me. You don't know me. I'm going to be better than you. You watch. You just watch where I'm going to go in my life. And I just had this venom, just this venomous, like, 
I'm someday I'm going to be somebody. Nobody's going to hold me back. And that anger was like my strength. It was like my power. And it was really for a lot of years what I lived on. It was like some people take vitamins and I would pop resentments, like just to get through the day, like everybody that I'm pissed at. Today I know the difference in energy, like I can feel it. Um, When I am in my own self-reliance, that's my uh, drug of choice really, um, When I'm in self-reliance, it's like a battery pack. It's going to run out. When I'm plugged into a a higher power, a source that's greater than me, and I'm acting as a conduit, the energy is limitless, limitless, right? I'm a conduit. It's just flowing through me. I don't get tired. I'm full of energy. Being of service is a joy. It's different. And so I know that today because I've worked the steps, but I was on my own battery pack. Sarah Reeves, self-will. Well, actually, my last name wasn't Reeves. Sarah, self-will. Just going through life hard, hard, hard. So by the time I was 14, um, we had moved to California, and uh, we came in one suitcase, and my mom basically went to her mom and said, you know, uh, I don't know what else to do. here. It's me and five kids. And I slept with my grandmother, and I remember every night my grandmother told me terrible things about my dad. And it was literally like I just, I wanted somebody to blame. I wanted to hate my father. I was ripe for it. So I, I took it. I took it all in, and my dad became my arch enemy. Like, he was the reason for everything. So when my mom sat us down and she's like, I think your dad might be an alcoholic. I was like, one more name to call him. Like, I just didn't even care. And um, my mom's brother got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and so she had heard of Al-Anon. And so she took us, she took me. I was like the one to go first to Alateen. But I will tell you, there was a time when four out of five of us sat in the same Alateen meeting. And actually, it's so funny. I was just thinking about that time period uh, last week and how special it was to sit in a meeting with um, three of my siblings. It meant a lot. But anyways, um, so I went to my very first meeting, and it was April 30th, 1987. Um, I was wearing all pastels. I know exactly what I was wearing because I used to keep a journal and write it down. Um, I was so obsessed with outward appearance, and I didn't want people to know I was poor. And so I, I kept track. And um, I thought that was pretty sick until I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and this girl leaned over, and she said, I kept track of what someone else was wearing. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you are way sicker than me. Anyways, um, but yeah, so I had on um, peach and light green. It was the 80s, um, but I also wanted to look pure. And I was always out to look good. I have my identity and being the good girl. And I walked into this meeting. We were late. We were always late. And um, I remember there was a guy in the meeting. He had a leather jacket on. And, you know, I go to a Christian school. I'm a good girl. I, you know, the whole thing. All pastels. I don't drink. I don't smoke. La, la, la. And... Um, I walked in, and he had this big black leather jacket, earrings up this ear, mohawk that was white and then black, missing his front tooth, and he leaned back in his chair dangerously low, and he said hi to me, and I got chills all over. And I, honestly, it was because he looked as bad as I felt inside, and it was 
it was like a spaceship landed and all my people got off. And this was like the place that I had been dreaming of. You know, people talk about you're as sick as your secrets. My family was begging me to keep a secret. I was telling anybody who would listen by this point. I'm now 14. I am not going to make it. I'm going to like spontaneously combust with my anger. And I, so when I went into Alateen and they were talking raw and real, raise your hand if you've been to an Alateen meeting. Well, I mean, you might have been at the one today, right? They talk super raw and real and you're just like, oh my gosh, should they say that out loud. I was so happy. I was like, this is my tribe. These are my people. This is where I belong. Now people take months, sometimes years, whether or not the program is for them. I, I'm a lifer. Like I knew the second I walked in, I had been craving this honesty my whole life. And so, um, I jumped into Alateen and said nothing. Um, you know, it was like the, I found something that I wanted so bad, but I was so afraid of losing it. So I sat in the corner and I remember they were like, do you want the smoking side of the room or the non-smoking side of the room? Which is like, do you want the peeing side of the pool or the non-peeing side of the pool? And so I, you know, I remember I sat in the corner with like the two other non-smokers and, um, I just loved it. And shortly after being in Alateen, I remember learning you can't make an alcoholic stop drinking. It's like telling somebody with pneumonia to stop coughing. You just can't. You're powerless. And so, like, I did the the deduction in my head, and um, I just decided I must leave home. Like, I got to get away from the alcoholic. And a bunch of things went down that I don't have to go, I don't have time to go into, but I will just tell you that um, I left home to prove a point, that I was bigger and better and stronger than my own dad. And I remember my dad used to say he was leaving all the time, but he always came back, and I thought that was so weak of him. And um, so my he, basically what happened was there was this big blowout. My dad used to say, you have the spirit of Jezebel in you, and try to cast her out. She might still be in there. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, my <laughs> that was a terrible joke. Anyways... <laughs> My, my poor brothers and sisters were so affected by the disease as well. And I look back now, and I've inventoried, and uh, there was one particular inventory exercise, and I don't usually share about this, but maybe someone needs to hear it, where I was to write about the most painful time in my family life, and it was that day that I left home. And then I was to go back and look and see where every single person in my family was in the room and try to imagine what they might have been feeling and it was such a powerful exercise for me because it reminded me and it rem- it sort of like cemented in my heart that everybody's affected by alcoholism. No one comes out unscathed. And just because they were reacting differently than I was reacting didn't mean that my pain was greater than everybody's like I always thought. Um, I once read something where alcoholism is like walking into a spider web, right? The spider web. Anybody who walks into it is going to be affected by it. Um, Sometimes it's more visible than others. And I was definitely affected by alcoholism in a way that could not be hidden much longer. And so I'm grateful I got into Alateen when I did. But when I left home, I was 15 years old. It was me against the world, and I thought that was a fair fight. I was really naive. Um, my self-righteousness, my anger, again, I thought was my strength, my power. I, ha- I wasn't really working step one. Um, when I left home, I was, like, I was a really good, I was class president. I was a virgin. Um, I had a job. I moved in with a friend of mine, and I remember after a couple of months, she kicked me out of her house because um, I stole her boyfriend. But... 
it wasn't really my fault. Um, <laughs> anyways, so I remember I went back home. Like I figured, okay, my dad has learned his lesson, right? I've been gone for two months. Now he's probably learned his lesson. And when I went to go back home, they were homeless again. And my dad had moved out of state. My mom had moved into a shelter with the two babies. And my brother went to one home and my sister went to another. And there was no home to go back to. And I remember it was literally like my bluff had been called. And I I was like, okay, suck it up. Just suck it up. Like, this is going to be okay. Like, and I was scared, but I couldn't afford to be scared. So then I just got angry. And anger and fear are like the same thing. So um, I ended up renting a room from a Cuban family. They were wonderful. They loved me so much. They wanted me to be a part of their family. But I had this weird thing called survivor guilt, which I, again, didn't learn about until I did my inventory. But I could not let that family embrace me because I felt so guilty about what had happened to my, my brothers and sisters. And I'd go to visit them after my Tuesday night Alateen meeting, and they would say things like, why did you leave us? And I would visit my mom in shelters. And one time she was living in somebody's backyard, and I would give my mom money, and I felt this tremendous tug of war. Like, on one side of me, I wanted to go and just run and never look back. And another part of me was like, I've got to help them. Like, who am I to try to be somebody when my family is suffering? And so I was constantly stretched like this. Now, if I was an alcoholic, this is where I would drink. For sure. Like, I hear alcoholics talk about that hole, that big gaping. That's, I identify with that. I know loneliness, like you wouldn't believe. Like, the whole, like, I can't tell anybody that I feel this way. I've just got to be the strong one for my family. I got to work two jobs. I got to get straight A's. I got to go to college. I'm going to be somebody, you know, and just this drive. And, um, but what happened is I needed something to take the edge off, right? And now I knew Alatine was the answer, but it wasn't enough. I know that it wasn't enough today because I wasn't working the steps. I was going to all the conventions. We have a thing called SCAC. I love SCAC. I was getting all the hugs. I was getting all the love. But there's a difference between being around the program and being in the program. And it was still all my dad's fault. It was all his fault. And so I had this block. And so basically I started to uh, just get in relationships. And I've had a boyfriend since I can remember. And I remember that I always had a boyfriend. And... The sicker he was, the better, you know. Um, I think I need you is much more romantic than I love you. And it just does something to me. And I would hook up with these guys that were just terrible. And I used to think that people would walk by and be like, oh, she must be something. She's with that guy. No, they were not thinking that. They were like, what is wrong with her? Um, But I would hook up with these guys and I began to overlap my relationships because I started to realize I couldn't be alone. And that was a terrifying feeling. And so if one was going south, I started another relationship. And I know some people call that cheating, but I call it overlapping. It was just, (laughs) honestly, it was about efficiency. And I I love efficiency. So I'm just about, let's just, it's easy. So um, pretty soon I ended up pregnant and... uh, You know, again, I'm a good girl. I got voted most likely to succeed in high school. And um, less than six months out, I was pregnant. And I didn't know who the father was. And um, it was painful. And I remember I couldn't blame it on my dad. I hadn't spoke to him in years. I couldn't blame it on my teachers because they all were rooting for me and, you know, wanted me to go to college. And I know that not everybody's supposed to go to college, but I was supposed to go to college. I was a straight-A student. It's ridiculous that I didn't go to college because I was living on my own. I probably could have gotten a scholarship anywhere. But when it came time to do the applications, I froze. 
I had a, a grandfather who said he would send the $50 application fee. I had like seven college applications, and I didn't send a single one. And years later, I would tell my sponsor, oh, I, I have a fear of failure. And my sponsor was like, oh, no, honey, you have a fear of success. Anytime you get close to the good or anytime something in your life starts to go well or right, or you get up close to a dream you might have or reaching some sort of potential, you sabotage it because you thrive in crisis. You shine when things are going crazy. You know how to manage life when it's all upside down, topsy-turvy. It's when things are smooth that you fall apart. And that was such, I mean, it's still a huge nugget of self-awareness that I need every day um, because otherwise I'll destroy my life on any given moment. But anyhow, so here I am um, pregnant and I remember telling my best Alateen buddy, I'm just going to go back east, have this baby, put it up for adoption, come right back, everything will be fine. And she was like, that's a geographic. That's exactly what your dad used to do every time you moved. You're not leaving town. You're going to come to the Tuesday meeting. You're going to share every week. La, 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 la. And together we can make it. And I was like, ugh. They're like, we don't care what you do with that baby, but you're going to come every week. And the, the guys in the meeting got shirts that said, not the father. <laughs> That's how Alateens support one another. I told you, raw and real, raw and real. So anyways, I went through that pregnancy. I was going to put the baby up for adoption. And um, at eight months pregnant, I remember sitting at a bus stop. And I smelled of bacon because I worked at Bob's Big Boy. And it was a super hot day. And I was sweating. And I was just tired. I mean, I was 18 years old, 19 years old. And I, I felt old, old, old like old lady old, like if somebody were to push me, I'd fall over, like I had no strength inside of me. I felt like uh, a whisper, like I just had no substance. I was just surrendered. And I remember thinking, if I put this baby up for adoption, I'm going to go back to living the way I was living, and I just can't. Like I felt like I was going to die. I totally believe in adoption. My sister put a baby up for adoption. It was a beautiful thing. Um, But I also believe that that little girl was meant for me. And um, I used to tell her when she was growing up, you picked me. Um, And God was like, no, 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 you don't want her. And she's like, yes, I do. I will remind her of you. And and that's what she did. Um, So anyways, I made a decision to keep my baby. And I decided I was going to redouble on, double up my efforts at the program. I thought, you know, I've been hanging around here for five years. It's time I work the steps. And so I looked, I sought hard to find a sponsor that would kick my ass. I was so defeated. I was waiting and wanting somebody to tell me exactly what to do so that I could guarantee that my daughter would not have to grow up in alcoholism like I had. And I became a soldier, an Al-Anon soldier. I worked steps one through 12, and then I worked the traditions, and then I worked the concepts, and I had a sponsor. And I started sponsoring others. I had a jacket with my name on it. I read seven daily readers. I started going on, you know, calls, uh, H&I calls to hospitals, institutions, unwed mother homes, and I just got busy in the program. I laugh every time they do the countdown for just Al-Anons, and they wonder, why do we not have Al-Anons under six months? Because they're busy. Like, you got to plan this stuff out. Like, we don't just spontaneously show up at a conference. Like, I am planned out. Like, I know what's going on. That's the kind of Al-Anon I am. So, I'm not surprised there's not someone here that's less than six months. I always think that's a miracle if there is. Um, you caught them on a, that little window when they were willing. Anyway, so I jumped into Al-Anon to become an Al-Anon superstar. And really, my motivation was about not making sure that my daughter had a good life. And uh, I got busy in the program. It was the first time that I was single. 
I was dedicated to getting through my steps and, um, you know, just doing everything right. You know, I was back to doing everything right again. Um, it's interesting because, uh, well, I'm jumping all ahead. But I will say I met my, um, I call him my husband, but I met my husband at that meeting. And he was just as gung-ho for AA as I was for Al-Anon. And, you know, he used to say that... Uh, the rocks in his head fit the holes in my head, and we immediately glommed on to each other. And I remember uh, when I got married, I got married in an AA hall, and um, my daughter wore a little pink dress, uh, and she got a sober daddy that day. And I think her getting a sober daddy was more important to me than getting a sober husband. It was a big deal. And um, we had a program wedding, and you know, we had the, the Al-Anon Big Book and the AA Big Book on our wedding cake, and they were like kissing. And uh, it was just, you know, we're going to trudge the road of happy destiny. And uh, my, my, uh, my daughter, he adopted her, and he's the dad that she knows. And um, he's been in her life since she was uh, a baby. And um, she would go on these 12-step calls with him, and then she'd show up at her preschool and say, you know, I'm a winner because I'm sober and um, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. And we just we were living this glorious life. And... Uh, we ended up getting a house and I, I bought a van and he got a motorcycle and we, you know, I, I mean like all these things started to happen and it's like, I, you know, I'm a little, I grew up homeless, you know, like how is this happening? It was like the, the Al-Anon AA dream and, um, we got a dog and, you know, it's just this glorious little life. And I, I look back at that time and I remember being so smug. That's what I remember about that time. Uh, there's a saying in our program, the winners are the people that are currently trying stick with the winners. And that's a dangerous one for me because it means I'm always taking everyone's inventory. Who are the winners? Am I going to stick with you? Are you in recovery enough for me to be around you? And that's super dangerous for me. And my group got really exclusive and inclusive and we were better than everyone else. And, um, I just had a self-righteousness about me that I'm not proud of. And um, during that time, you know, my ex-husband has the same thing I have, and he, he's afraid of the good, too. And when things started to get good, he drank. And he was just shy of nine years sober. And um, I was shocked. I could not believe that it happened. It was like a grenade went off in my home. And I was pissed. I was angry. I was like, and looking back now, I realized I hadn't really worked step one. Step one says I'm powerless over alcohol. As long as, in my head, as long as I work a good enough program, alcoholism can't get me. So if I sponsor enough people, if I read enough books, if I go to enough meetings, if I'm thoroughly honest, like I just became like a soldier in the program. And the better the program I had, the less I needed God, the less I needed you, the less I needed trust and faith and all the things that I'm not good at. Um, I always say that I know people have God issues. Um, I'm fortunate because, maybe because I grew up in the church, I don't have God issues. I happen to know God loves me. I actually think I might be, might be one of his favorites. Um, <laughs> I really do. Um, my issue is God's not going to take care of me. My issue is you may love me, but you don't got my back. My issue is I don't trust that anyone's going to be there if I fall down. If I fall down, it is my damn responsibility to pull myself up. God gave me brains to use. I got to blaze forward. This is it. He gave me my life. Now I got to run with it. And that is what will kill me. That self-reliance that I don't need you. I got this. Thank you very much. 
I don't, I, I can't trust anyone. I don't need to be vulnerable. You know, it's more about the image, you know, all of that. Even I did that in the program. Working a good enough program is like my big facade. Um, today, I care a whole lot less about being the best Al-Anon member, right? Um, but at that time, my world blew up because that was important to me. And I remember my daughter coming home and just being like, I, you know, I love daddy no matter what. And I remember being envious that she said that. Like, why can't I love him no matter what? Why, why do I still love him? Where's the on and off switch? Like, I thought if he ever drank, I'd just stop loving him. And it got crazy, and it got crazy fast. And I, I won't go into all of it, but basically, um, he started using drugs and slamming speed and committing felonies. He turned into a criminal. It was horrifying. And um, the whole time, I was just falling apart. I remember I left my home group. I ended up getting a new sponsor, working the steps again, and just being just having this overwhelming feeling of shame like I was failing like how did how did I drag my get my daughter in the middle of alcoholism when I was trying so hard to avoid this um, there's actually one of our books it's called transforming our losses and it's about grief and there's a whole section on grieving the childhood you couldn't give your kids and it was really powerful for me to read that and I I've come a long way with forgiving myself and having acceptance for what is you know um, I've tried so hard to to author my life a certain way. And it seems the harder I've tried, the more I've gotten off track. Now I'm trying to live more like, okay, God, you, you are in charge. This is, I, I'm just getting to enjoy the ride. Um, but at that time, I was really trying to force control. I, really, my goal was to get him sober again. I was sure that if I could just remind him of how much he loved AA and just get him back, um, we could go back to where we were. And that's not what happened. Um, he ended up turning himself in, getting locked up. Um, and, uh, well, actually, I should tell you this really quick story. He, he told me he was going to turn himself in. And I was so happy and so proud, uh, mainly because it really, it's really hard to keep track of one of those active ones. Um, and uh, I, uh, anyways, I, uh, um, I told him, okay, okay, I'll make a nice lasagna dinner, and I got a babysitter, and I had a cute dress on, and I'm like, okay, honey, time to go to jail. And um, he was, like, not excited about it, so he disappeared. We were, I had the babysitter looking for him, the neighbors looking for him. I was like, hey, this is the agreement. I made you dinner. You're turning yourself in, da, da, da. I was looking everywhere for him. I finally found him behind a, like, convenience store. And I guess this is so significant for me because I'm a visual person. And to see this man who loved AA, he loved to be sober and work with others, um, to see him sucked up, so sucked up, like for, he had lost 40 pounds or something, and he was drinking out of a paper bag. Ugh, it was bad. And I remember yelling at him, what is wrong with you? You can't go to jail drunk. And, <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what's wrong with you? I can't go to jail not drunk. And it was like something clicked. Like the, the meetings that I'd been sitting in, like all of a sudden it clicked. Oh my gosh, I see it as poison. He sees it as medicine. Like this, we are not on the same plane. He is on the other side of alcoholism. Like I cannot reach him. It has to be another alcoholic. Who am I trying to save him? I'm losing myself trying to save him. Alcoholism doesn't just want the alcoholic. It wants the entire family. And it was taking me down and my daughter too. And I was like, no, I've got to stand up. I've got to work a program now more than ever. And so I just like sort of bucked up. I remember taking him that night 
and we got there at like after hours so they wouldn't take him. <laughs> I don't know what we pay taxes for. I was like, no, I, do you know what I just went through to get him here? You are taking him. And they're like, no, sorry, come back tomorrow morning at 7. And I had an assembly. You know, I was a district rep, for God's sake. So um, I told the girls I sponsors, okay, well, we're dropping him off at jail, and then we're going to the district meeting. And I remember walking in, and one of these <laughs> girls says, I wonder if anyone else dropped their husbands off at jail today. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Anyways, uh, I don't know why I got off on that story. But he, he went in, he came out, and when he came out, he was like, you know what? When I was in, I lost a lot. And part of what I think I lost was my love for you. And I want to be sober in AA, but I don't want to be married. And it was like, <gasps> like I felt like such a failure. Like, what do you mean? What? My whole identity was wrapped up in getting back to the life we had. And I remember my sponsor saying, some marriages just don't make it. There isn't anything more for you to do. There's only more for you to see. And I, it, that was a very painful time. I remember being an absolute mess, going to meetings, trying to keep my commitments. Meanwhile, he's sober in AA. Everybody loves him. He's back on track, doing his own thing. He'd show up at my daughter's soccer games, and everybody just thought he was so great. And I would just be bawling in my car. Like, what is it about the alcoholic that makes everybody just love them and fools everyone? I feel like it's my dad all over again. And my sponsor would say, or she did say when I said that, what is it about you that maybe wants to take the one thing away from that man that makes him feel good about himself? And then she said, how important is it that your daughter have a hero for a father? Pretty important. And she said, you may be powerless, but you have influence. You treat him as, he, as if he was the man that you wanted your daughters to have as a father. That was so hard. So I began to do that. And also during that time when I got my first divorce, I, uh, I, you know, people were like, oh, you should get into a relationship. I was like, what? I felt like a raw nerve. Um, but then somebody else said, uh, why don't you go back to school? And, you know, I went back to school. And, again, not everybody's supposed to go to college. I was supposed to go to college. I feel like alcoholism ripped me from a track that I was supposed to be on, and recovery is about putting me back on that original track. And not everything gets restored in the second step, but some things do. And it's worth, if you don't have a dream, you can't have a dream come true. If you don't put it out there, if you don't say, this is what I want restored, then God can't do his business, right? He does his best work with the big surprises. He loves to show off. So why not let him show off with your life, right? So I started to go back to school and I'd plug away and I was going to my meetings. I also returned to church at that time. I started going to church um, not because I wanted to hear what that message was, but because I craved the singing. I'm, I'm kind of a hyperactive person, and meditation is really hard for me. But there's something about singing, like corporate singing, that calms my soul. And so I started finding myself in places where, wherever I could, where I could find God. I would sit at the beach, and I would just soak him in. And I would just be like, God, show me who you are. Show me who I'm supposed to be. What am I supposed to be doing with this time? I want it to be fruitful. I became very intentional about that time. Also, I was treating my ex-husband with a lot of grace and dignity. And um, my daughter says one day, Mama, Mama, Dad wants to go to church with us. It's an answer to prayer. And I was like, I was not praying that. Um, 
so he started going to church with us. And, you know, at church, everybody sits together, all the kids, and then they dismiss the kids, and then it's the adults. So she'd sit in between us, then she'd get up. Now we're sitting next to each other. So pretty soon we're sleeping together. And then I'm going to meetings, and I'm like, oh, I'm sleeping with my ex-husband. And my sponsor's like, just keep sharing, just keep sharing. And um, my sponsor would say, you know, um, it's not so much important that you do what I think you should do as that you just keep sharing because it's in the not sharing that we get sick. It's in, uh, you know, the lies that we tell ourselves and we tell others to keep that facade up. For me, it's super dangerous because I have to be transparent. I have to have a home group. I have to have people who know me because I have the capacity to look my best when I'm at my worst. And that's dangerous. I used to think that was an asset, but today I know that's really dangerous. Luckily, I have people who read through the lines, who see me, that know me, all of that. So anyways, uh, I ended up marrying my ex-husband. I don't recommend it. Um, and, uh, but I don't regret it either. Um, I do believe in restoration, and I do believe in God's will, but I also believe in free will. And um, while he was sober again, and, you know, I had gone through the steps again and made amends. In fact, I'd even made amends to my dad, who was still drinking, and asked my dad if he'd walk me down the aisle, and he did. Um, I had told my dad there was no alcohol at my wedding because the church didn't have a liquor license, but you could drink in the car, and he actually took me up on it. Um, <laughs> But what I want you to know about that is I did not notice my dad was drunk. I've been to so many AA meetings. I love alcoholics. And I know when an alcoholic says, I love you. And it's not always in those words. And for my father to show up at my wedding knowing that there wouldn't be alcohol, but doing what he had to do so that he could walk me down the aisle, that's all I saw. That's all that I knew was that I'm not super close to my dad. Um... And I wasn't at that time either, but I had this sense like maybe this is what God wanted. This is what it's supposed to look like. Um, Yeah, I can do this, you know, whatever. It means something to him. Um, And I did not notice he was drunk. You can see it in the video. And like people told me afterwards they could smell it on his breath, but I did not notice. And to me, that is a gift. That denial that I experienced growing up in alcoholism and being married to somebody who was using and not seeing it turned out to be a gift in this situation. I, it was like a filter. All I knew was that my dad loved me, and I loved him, and, um, and that was that. So we had a restoration celebration, and um, I think my daughter was holding her breath through the whole thing, and um, we got married again. We got pregnant on purpose. I lost that baby. And I remember my daughter uh, fell apart, and my sponsor sponsor shared with me something that was really valuable. And she said, you know, everything that we go through has value, and God has the ability to bring good out of it. It doesn't mean that everything we go through is good, but he can work for good. And um, I got to talk to my daughter about one of the key things that I think is, is true and pass something on to her, which is good things don't happen to us because we're good. And bad things don't happen to us because we're bad. Life just happens. And, um, and I think she got that through that experience. And uh, the other thing that it did is it let me know that I really wanted to have a baby. And, uh, you know, something in my heart needed to be mended. And I had known that the way that I brought my daughter into the world was not the way that it should be. And uh, so I planned my son, Luke. And he, um, 
I should I should just give you a picture in case anyone's freaking out. I'm I'm an Al-Anon who keeps track of everything. So if you are like that, let me just give you a snapshot of my life today. My daughter's 25. My son is 11. Um, so she was like 13, 14 when he was born, and um, and I thought, okay, I've arrived. This is what it's all for. Now I have the family I've always wanted. Now we're going to trudge the road of happy destiny. And um, my, when my son was seven months old, my life blew up again. And this time it wasn't drinking. Um, I, I thought it was drugs, uh, but it came out that it was something different. And basically my son, um, my son, oh, please no. My ex-husband got diagnosed with mental illness. And, um, and a sex addiction, which he would tell you today. Otherwise, I would not tell you that. Um, and it was um, awful and dreadful and scary. Um, but I was different. And that's the key. Um, I remember my sponsor shared with me this concept called emotional prudence. And she said, right now, your number one Al-Anon commitments are named Carissa and Luke. And while all this insanity is happening over here, your kids have a chance of having a good life if you continue to be the stable source in their life. So they deserve to have a dad that they can respect and love and feel safe with. And you deserve to have some dignity too. So let's walk through this together with a close-knit circle of friends, which is what we did. Um, I, I remember when I talked to him, because something had happened. I said, um, I had learned in meetings when you have something important to say, you say it in 10 words or less, and you mean what you say, but you, you don't say it mean. And I simply said, I know you're lying. I don't know what about, but I think you need to leave until we figure it out. And he said, okay. And that was a red flag. Um, and then he left, and he never asked to come back home. And that's been over 11 years now. So um, once again, I found myself on a path I never wanted to be on. This is not the life that I wanted. Now I have a teenager and a baby. And I'm like, God, this is not what I wanted. Um, I buckled down and I remember I worked my steps again. I made a decision to be intentionally single and celibate and to commit to my kids. And I began on this journey. And uh, it's funny because that's when people started asking me to share. Not when I was like doing really well, but this is when people started asking me to come and speak at their conferences so you could all leave feeling better about your lives. <laughs> That's the way I took it. But what I learned, it saved me. What I learned is you show up when you're suffering. You share when you're in pain. You get out of yourself and you be of service when you're hurting. And it was so powerful. And I, I know that I am I, I don't know if my son knows that, but my daughter knows it, that we don't wait to get better to become, before we become real. You get real when you, you know, you heal when you get real. And so I started to take the actions believing that the feelings would follow. Um, I was told that, you know, if you, if you broke your foot, you'd put it in a cast. You broke your heart, you put your heart in a cast. I put my heart in a cast. I began to do things um, to restore my self-esteem, to restore my sense of uh, dignity, um, I got to uh, start running half marathons. I even ran a full marathon. Um, I was sponsoring Alatine. I was paying attention and being present with my kids. Um, I got to be a soccer mom. I got to be a PTA thing, you know, do all that weird stuff and, and, um, and feel like a fraud every minute of the way. And my sponsor would say, just keep doing the next right thing. Just keep doing the next right thing. Um, today, I co-parent with my ex-husband, my husband, very well. Um, he would probably tell you he'd marry me a third time. That's not going to happen. Um, 
but we we get along so well most people don't even know we're divorced um and uh i believe that's the traditions he doesn't go to aa anymore but he knows the traditions like i do and we practice singleness of purpose um i don't have any opinion on outside issue and that includes outside issues include the people that he dates so that's an outside issue for me anything that affects our kids and singleness of purpose that's what we talk about and most of our conversations are positive and little happy face emojis and everything it's ridiculous um but I, I have to speed up and share with you about my daughter. So I was hoping, uh, against all hope, that she would come out unscathed. I used to say, you know, uh, normies give birth to alcoholics all the time, so why can't sick people give birth to normies? And I was, like, crossing my fingers that she would be um, okay. And she, um, I think she had depression in high school, but it really manifested in college. And it got really scary super fast. And um, the thing about depression is, um, well, it requires outside help. But for me, I'm a natural cheerleader. I'm a natural encourager. God has gifted me with that. And so I felt like my daughter was my kryptonite. Like I could pretty much cheer up anyone, move the whole room to laughter, but I could not get her out of bed. I could not make her want to live. I could not make her happy. And it was so painful. And the powerlessness I experienced watching my ex-husband go through his disease, I experienced once again with my daughter. And it was really tough. Um, and I would, you know, cling to the things that people would say to me in meetings and my cow literature and the writing that I would do and the, the things that my sponsor would say and it was really painful, and she decided to go away for college, and I felt very, very powerless. Um, but I, re- I learned here in, in meetings uh, that she had a path, and that I used to cling to the phrase, her story ends well. And I would trust, and I would say things to her like, I love you, I believe in you, I know you'll make the right decision for you. She had grown up in meetings. She'd gone to meetings her whole life. She stopped going to meetings as a teenager. Um, she knew where you guys were. She, it's, it was not her thing. So um, there's a page in our ODAT, uh, I believe it's July 1st, and it talks about how um, somebody else's stability, serenity, and happiness is not up to me, just as my serenity, happiness, and stability is not up to anyone else. Each of us have our own path to find. And I may have found solutions to how to live my life, but just because she, I have doesn't mean she's going to take them just because she's my kid. And uh, I started to step back and practice detachment. And for me, um, I, I, I liken it to when, when she was younger, it was like she was on stage and I was telling her where to go and what to say and what to wear and who to talk to. And then as she got older, I moved you know, farther and farther back. As a teenager, I was like in the balcony screaming. And she had all these other people influencing her. And now as an adult, I'm, I'm like watching a movie. Like I feel like I have hardly any influence. Um, so at the movies, you get popcorn, right? So I just get my popcorn and I'm just watching the movie. And this part of her story is not my favorite. And this part of her story is maybe the one that I want to get up and go make a phone call, go to the restroom or whatever. But I know it's going to get good. I know that it's going to work out somehow. And um, practicing that kind of detachment and showing her that kind of unconditional, non-critical, I don't have an agenda for your life, has really strengthened our bond. And she talks to me like you wouldn't believe. She tells me things I don't really want to know. On those things, I just stuff the popcorn in. Oh, I so love 
I don't want to hear this. I don't want to know about this. I just, I keep, I pray and I eat popcorn. And that's my detachment. Anyway, I got to the part of my story that is hard, but, um, and also exciting and amazing. But anyways, Carissa is, um, she's doing much better. She dropped out of college about uh, a semester before she would have graduated. I'm so proud. And, um, I went through this whole surrender with that. You know, I was supposed to go to college. That doesn't mean she was supposed to go to college. And then she decided to stay in San Francisco, which felt very scary to me. Um, But then after some time, she ended up enrolling in Aveda Hair School, and she's paying for it. I don't even know where the campus is. She's doing it on her own. She has her own social media Instagram account that everybody's following because she does amazing hair. And, um, And it's okay. It's her path. You know, and I'm grateful that I didn't have to be sabotaging it along the way. Now, is she okay and happy? I, I don't know. She's, she's not necessarily happy. But um, about two years ago, I went to a women's retreat that we did four-step inventory stuff, and I had this epiphany. And I realized that um, where at one time it was uh, self-preservation and it was also doing the right thing to protect my kids and to be single, I realized now that I was using my kids to kind of play it safe. I felt like I can't afford to mess up one more time or get my heart broken and trampled. I just, I, I don't know if I'll get back up. And, um, and the other thing I realized in that writing is that I was waiting for my daughter to be okay. Somehow it felt wrong for me to move on with my life and be, and pursue happiness with my daughter still being sad and confused. Um, and then I learned, as someone said to me in this meeting, like, gosh, don't you think that's such an act of faith for you to step away and take your eyes off of her and go pursue happiness and trust that God's really got her? <sighs> Easier said than done. But I started to do that. So I took my eyes off of her, and um, she did not like that. So um, I know some people experience, you know, their kids are like, oh, thank God, I needed a break. My daughter was not like that. She, she did still feel like I was responsible for her happiness. And that was so painful to walk away and to start doing things um, that felt very selfish. But that's kind of where we're at today. Um, she started noticing that um, I'm a much better mother with her brother and I said, honey, I'm not going to F him up just so it's fair. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have made amends to you. Like, it, the, you're, you know, this is it. You know, I am a better mother. Absolutely. Would I go back and change it? Absolutely. Do we have a chance of changing the future? Yes. You know, and I, I will continue to be your cheerleader and be present for you. Um, but not in the way that you need me right now. Right now, it's, it's your time. Go shine. Um, so those are the kind of conversations that we have. And then I would call my sponsor and she repeat back everything. And she usually says, you said way too much. Um, those kind of things. But anyway, okay, so I'm avoiding, I'm avoiding, avoiding. So here I am. I just should just say it. Oh, my gosh. So I actually fell in love. I know. It's crazy. Um, I know. It's so crazy. It gets better. It gets better. Um, and I fell in love with a woman. So a lot of people are shocked about that, me included. Um, And the bigger shock is that she's not an alcoholic. She's an Al-Anon. 
And I remember calling my sponsor about this when I was going through this whole thing and, um, and saying, gosh, isn't it so great? She's an Al-Anon. And my sponsor reminded me that being an Al-Anon is not necessarily a pillar of emotional health. <laughs> so... <laughs> so this is a whole new chapter. Um, and my sponsor talks about life as in seasons and in chapters, and I am in this chapter of being brave. I'm trying to be brave over perfect. I am trying to be real over amazing and, um, and just live my life. For a pleaser like me who has identity and following the rules and being good, um, it's been crazy wild. Um, my ex-husband loves it. He's so happy. Lets him off the hook. He tells everyone. Um, I think it makes him feel like uh, he's redeemed. Like he obviously did nothing. It was all me. So it's so funny because I used to pray like, how is this going to work? Um, my, uh, my kids love her. Uh, we are embracing this new life that it's a twist that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, and I'm, I am trying to, uh, live authentically. Um, my brothers and sisters, uh, love me. Uh, I didn't really talk about them, but I'll just share with you quickly that I'm the only one who doesn't use drugs and alcohol on a daily basis. And I don't say that in a condescending way. I say that because I have a program, and they do not. And it was really messed up what we went through, and there's still residual pain. And so I have no issue with any of them. They all love me more now because they're like, Sarah's come off her pedestal. And um, they, my, two of my sisters said, can we please be there when you tell Dad so that he'll disown us too? <laughs> and I was like, nope, you guys got to come up with your own issue. So um, my, uh, my dad is not speaking to me, and surprisingly, that bothers me more than I thought it would. So I'm in another, another layer of that because I'm like, what the heck? I, why does this bother me so much? Um, however, I am taking this day by day. I'm trusting God. I'm showing up and being honest. I'm admitting that I have more questions than I have answers, and I'm just doing one day at a time. I know my story ends well, and this isn't the end, so I don't really know how to end my talk. But I will tell you that I am grateful for the journey. I'm grateful for the people who allow me to be real in these rooms. I've grown up here, and I plan to be here for life, and I'm so glad that some of you will be with me too. Thank you.